Well, since I am not an American football fan, uh, I never know when the biggest day in American football takes place, which is the Super Bowl. Um, this was never my sport, so I never cared. Uh, but Super Bowl Sunday is a huge day in the U.S. And as it turns out, the Super Bowl, Super Bowl was uh, two weeks ago today. The Super Bowl is always, always on a Sunday. And the only reason I, I know that it was two weeks ago is because I have watched videos, plural, recently of church services on Super Bowl Sunday where the stage was covered in fake grass. Lines were painted on that fake grass to look like a football field. And the pastor came out wearing a team jersey. And many of these pastors brought in an, an American football up on stage and had someone hold it and then they would kick it to make some theological point. In one horrific scene, they used the Bible as a football and someone kicked it while the pastor tried to catch it. He fumbled it and had to dive on the ground to, to grab it. And while there's probably a lot that could be said about all that today, I, I don't want to ask the question, well, what were they doing? Which is a valid question, but I don't want to ask that question today. What I want to ask is, what are the people who attend those churches expecting? What are they going to church for? What are they wanting to see, to hear, to experience? Now, I'm not about to answer that question for them because I don't know their hearts or what's in their hearts, but it's the question that I want to ask you this morning. Why are you even here? If you are a Christian, what have you come here for? Have you come here to be entertained? Have you come here because you have to? What are you expecting when you walk through those doors? Many people choose the church they attend because they like the type of songs that they sing or the style of the songs. Maybe they like that the, the building is really big or the pastor is well known. Maybe it's they go because that's where their friends go. Maybe they, they go because they want to be entertained. There, there are many reasons why people who say they're Christians go to the church that they go to. So I want to ask you again, why did you get up this morning to come here? Only you can answer that. I cannot answer that for you. About a year ago, I preached a sermon on worship where I attempted to lay out why it is that this church, Dundalk Baptist Church, why we exist. And here's what I said. Dundalk Baptist Church exists to glorify God and proclaim the supremacy of Christ in all things through worship, acts of brotherly love, and global missions. That's why we exist here. We exist not to entertain not to entice people to come to this church because we sing Taylor Swift songs during church service, which some churches have done, but because we want to glorify God by worshiping him and enjoying him. And I hope that is why you are here this morning. 
I hope as a, as a Christian you are here because you want to glorify God. You want to exalt Christ by delighting in him and being given opportunity for that delight to be made complete in the overflow of praise from your lips, in the hearing of his word with your, with your ears and in the uniting of your hearts in prayer. And so as we think about worship this morning, I want us to turn to a text where Jesus confronts our external expectations of worship and goes right to the heart of the matter. And so if you have your Bibles with you this morning or if you are reading it on your phone, turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And we're going to pick up where Les left off just a little while ago with the woman at the well. And so John chapter 4, beginning in verse 19, and we'll read through verse 26. This is what the Bible says, beginning in verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Watching this scene, uh, watching Jesus throughout this scene, is like watching an expert surgeon who precisely cuts away at the cultural, personal, and heart issues of this woman so that he can bring her focus and, and ours as well back on what is of primary importance. And he does this, first of all, by just merely talking to this woman. He does this by just talking with this Samaritan woman. Remember, there was no love between Jews and Samaritans. They did not like each other. When the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, whose capital was Samaria, was, was taken by the Assyrians in about 722, 721 BC, many of the people there were taken into exile. And then the Assyrians settled in the land, other foreigners came into the land, and they intermarried with the remnant of Israel who was still there. And so when the Jews returned from exile, particularly back to the southern kingdom, they viewed these Samaritans as half-breeds because they had intermarried, they were political rebels. And yet, here is Jesus sitting at this well in Samaria, and he's waiting. And so he's, he's crossing these, these boundaries. Secondly, Jesus does this by reframing his conversation on thirst with this woman, which is what Les read a little while ago. Jesus is wearied from his travels, and he asks for a drink. This this, this Samaritan woman is quite appropriately astonished that this Jewish man is asking her for a drink. But then Jesus redirects her, to, her surprise to spiritual issues. If only you knew who was talking to you right now. 
you would be asking me for a drink and I would give you living water. And so he's changed the direction. It's not just about water. Let's talk about living water. And finally, he does this by confronting her heart. He tells her, well, go call your husband. And she responds, well, I don't have a husband. To which Jesus replies, you're right. You've had five husbands and the guy you're with right now, he's not your husband. He gets right after the heart of all of these issues. And now what follows It's where we're going to focus this morning because it's on the heels of this declaration of Jesus that the man this woman is with is not her husband, that she realizes this guy that she's talking to, this is no ordinary man. But instead of being convicted by what Jesus has said, instead of pushing Jesus further to explain what he meant by living water and how she can get some, she immediately turns the conversation toward worship, excuse me, toward worship. And so what can we glean from this conversation between Christ and this woman? Let me give you six observations about worship that we can glean. (coughs) Excuse me. First, worship is not about location. The woman takes the spotlight off of herself and her relationships and tries to turn it onto the external differences of worship between the Jews and the Samaritans. She says in verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, if you've been here any length of time, you've heard me talk about the uh, mountain theology of the Bible. Mountain tops were the nexus points between heaven and earth. They were where the divine and, the, and, and humanity interacted, which is why you have temples and religious sites on Uh, built on top of hills and mountains throughout the world. And so the question being posed by the woman is, which mountain is the correct one to worship? Which one does God dwell on so that I know where I need to go to worship? Is it Mount Gerizim, as the Samaritans have said? Is it the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, like the Jews have said? Where am I to go? And Jesus goes along with the discussion on worship. But just like he did in the previous just like he did previously with all the other questions that were posed, he redirects her question and forces her to focus not on the external realities, but on the heart. So verse 21, Jesus said to her, woman, we might just translate this to something like, ma'am, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And that's a radical statement. That's a radical statement. Mount Gerizim, the place where the blessings were proclaimed to the covenant community as half of Israel stood on that mountain before they entered the promised land. The place where your people, the Samaritans, where they have worshipped for centuries. This mountain is irrelevant. Jerusalem The location of the Temple Mount, the the city of David, the holy city, the place where Jews have come to offer sacrifices and to worship for near a millennium. Irrelevant. Why? Because the mountaintop theology that permeates scripture was leading not to a new location, but to an individual. Heaven and earth now intersect in a person in Jesus. 
The hour is coming when neither on this mountain here in Samaria nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. It's not about where, it's about who and how. All of this poses a a penetrating question to us here. Where is the place of your worship? Is it this building? If God struck this building with lightning and it crumbled to the ground, would worship stop? If we sold this building and moved to a new building, would worship stop? If the government decides to crack down on churches and take this building away or make it financially impossible for us to keep it, would worship stop? Does the love of tradition and architecture and the feeling of this is our place of worship have more a grip on your heart than God himself? While we were in Serbia, what I guess uh, two weeks ago, we visited St. Sava's church, um, one of the largest Orthodox churches in the world. And we got to visit the catacombs and see the the ornate mosaics and the murals that covered the walls and ceilings. And it was an amazing sight to behold. But for all its beauty and grandeur, it doesn't mean that God is there. Trust me, Jesus says, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And while we thank God that we have a building that we can gather in every Sunday to worship, let us not slide into the mindset that this is the only place in this community that God can be worshipped. Worship is not about location. Well, the second observation I want to make from this passage is that while worship is not about location, it is about a who. Look again at what Jesus says here in verse 21. He says, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The Father. That's very interesting because the woman didn't say that. The woman didn't say the Father. And Jesus could have said, You will worship God. You will worship the Lord. So why the Father? Why does he say that? Well, for a couple reasons, I think. First, Notice that this woman is concerned with her ancestral relationships. When when she tells, when Jesus tells her that he will give her living water, her response is, where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? And then questioning Jesus about where is the place to worship, she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. And so Jesus is redirecting her focus away from her human fathers to the to the Father, to the one who is the Father of both Samaritans and Jews. This is the one to be worshipped. But second, he's using the term Father so that we as the reader would continue to remember that the one speaking to the woman at the well is none other than the Son. For a father cannot be a father if he does not have a child. And because we know the stories of the Bible so well, these things don't often strike us as powerfully as they would have the the early hearers and readers. 
This connection that Jesus is the Son and God is the Father has already been made in the Gospel of John. In 1.14, we read, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in 1.18, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. And then again in 2.16, Jesus told those who were selling pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And then in 335, we read, The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. And this relationship of the father and the son will will carry on throughout the rest of the book of John. And yet it's a reminder to us as well that we too can be called sons and daughters of the father. We can be called the children of God. In John 1.12, we read, But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, so receiving is believing, believing is receiving, he gave the right to become children of God. And so here is Jesus before this woman who has had several husbands, who is concerned about the connection with her forefathers, and Jesus is telling her, Drink from the living water that I give you. That is, believe that I am the Son, that I am the Savior, and you too will be called a child of God, and you too will worship the Father rightly. And that is what he calls us to do today. That is what he calls on each one of you, to believe in him, to trust in him, and to recognize that the God who created you and who created all that is, that he is your father. So disputes over location are irrelevant. The question is, who are you worshiping? Well, the third observation comes from verse 22. Jesus now digs down on this point of who because even though he's just said that the the father is the one who is to be worshiped, he turns around and tells this woman, uh, woman that she doesn't know who God is. He says in verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Her entire system of worship, and by extension the Samaritans as a whole, worshiped with incomplete knowledge. The the Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament as inspired. They rejected all of the prophets, all of the wisdom books, all the historical books. Their canon was incomplete. And as a result, their worship was not done with knowledge. Well, does this mean that all the Jews worshipped with knowledge? That they knew not only who to worship, but how? Not at all. In Matthew, Jesus confronts the Pharisees and scribes, the, the, the religious leaders who should have known all of this. And in Matthew 15, verse 9, he says, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, When he said, the people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. So you can be here this morning. You can sing the songs that we sing. You can listen to me and think you are worshiping, and yet you don't know who God is. Or why you are even doing the things you are doing. So I ask you, do you know God? Do you know him as your father? Do you know Jesus? 
Are you worshiping with knowledge? Only you can answer those questions. For many others of you, realize that you may know the Bible very well. You may have a deep understanding of the doctrine of God. You may have lots of knowledge. But there is a way to worship in vain, even with all that knowledge. The Pharisees and the scribes had much knowledge, but their heart was far from him. And so where is your heart? True biblical worship engages both the head and the heart. And Jesus himself is going to highlight this in just a minute. But before we get there, the fourth observation is knowledgeable worship comes from the entirety of God's revelation which he has left for us. Jesus says, we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Now he does not mean by that that one must become a Jew in order to find salvation or that all Jews are saved. We already saw that Jesus accused many of the the Pharisees and scribes of worshiping in vain. Rather, what he means here is that the salvation that was hoped for, that was promised, is laid out within the stream of divine revelation given to the Jews, what we call the Old Testament. And then subsequently, post-resurrection, post-ascension, through the New Covenant documents, which we call the New Testament. And so it's in Scripture that we know who God is, who our Savior is, and how we are to worship him. Well, this then leads us to the fifth observation, which is the how. The woman started off by wanting to talk about where, where ought we to worship, but Jesus turns the discussion to what is really important, the who and the how. Look at verses 23 and 24. Jesus says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So here is the how. Here is the how. How do we worship? What is the appropriate way to worship? We worship in spirit and truth. Now this does not mean that we are free to worship however our spirit leads us at any given moment. And so if your spirit is leading you to get up and do an interpretive dance of this sermon, that is not worship. In fact, the word spirit here does not seem to be referring to our spirit, but to the Holy Spirit. True worship takes place when we having been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, when we have been born of the Spirit so that our hearts, our affections are appropriately aligned so that then we become true worshipers. That's what Jesus is after. He says, when the true worshipers will worship, To do that requires an act of the Spirit upon our hearts. We worship in the power of the Spirit himself whose desire is to bring honor to the Father and the Son. Then he also says we are to worship in truth. We must know whom we are worshiping. 
This is why Christians for so long have been called people of the book. The Bible is not to be read just because it's a nice story. It's God's word to us that we might know him better. That we might understand what we are doing here even right now. That we might know why we come here every Sunday. God has revealed himself through his word so that even though we may not know him exhaustively, we can still know him truly. And we can know him most completely in the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so to know the one whom we worship, we turn to God's divine word, and in his divine word, we see the incarnate word. Worship, true worship, is both heart and head. It is spirit and truth. Now, if that is what is required for true worship, and if at the same time God has laid out the elements that are appropriate for worship in the rest of Scripture, then there are a few things that we can take away from this. First, punting the Bible as if it were an American football is not worship and does not help others to worship. I've heard Dr. James White say this so many times, what you win them with is what you win them to. This is why I asked you at the beginning, what are you expecting? What are you expecting to do here when you come on a Sunday morning? If it's to be entertained, then when you no longer feel entertained, you will leave. If it's because you want people to hear how good a singer you are or how great a musician you are, then when the spotlight is no longer on you, you will leave. But if you are here to worship, If you are here to stand shoulder to shoulder with other sinners and sing this the power of the cross, Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath, we stand forgiven at the cross. And so if you are here to do that with other sinners around you and to do so with a knowledge of who you really are and who God really is, then your worship will not be in vain. Secondly, what this means is that there is no sacred order of worship. Worship is not about having a certain number of songs, praying at this time, preaching at this time. Just as we we shouldn't cling to this building with the hands of tradition as the only place we can worship in this town, so too we shouldn't think, well, the way that we do service is the best way or the only way. While the elements of a prayer and singing and hearing God's word are vital, the structuring is not. Worship, true worship, takes place in spirit and in truth. And this last takeaway that I want to give is is this. I know I've, I've said ultimately this building does not make worship happen. I'm not just saying that. Jesus is saying that, right? You don't have to be in Jerusalem to worship God. It's not about location. And yet this is the place the Lord has given to us to worship. And we should be thankful. We should be grateful. There are many churches in this country that don't have a building of their own. And so we ought to give all thanks to God. 
And so in light of that, let us remember that this is where we as a body do come to worship. This is the place where we come as a body to meet with our Lord. Kids, remember what this means. This means that this is not the place to run around and play games. You have the entire world outside to do that. Just check with your parents first. This is the place where we come to hear God say, thus says the Lord. And to do so with both fear and joy and to worship in both spirit and truth. Well, let me close with the final observation from our text. Verses 25 and 26 here. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. What a way to end this whole conversation with this woman. He starts by asking her for a drink. And by the end, he is disclosing to her that he himself is the very one she has been waiting for. But not only her, but all of human history has been waiting for him. Because what he says to her, he says also to all of us. So here's how John Piper summarizes this whole scene. Jesus tells this Samaritan woman and us, I am the living water you were made to drink. I am the prophet who knows everything about you and still wants you. I am the Savior who has come into the world and died for sinners to make true worship possible. You ask about the coming Messiah? I who speak to you am he. Trust me. Believe in me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are thankful at this moment, having read this text, that we can come to you and say, Our Father. What an amazing thing that is. We pray that even now you would forgive us if we have worshipped you in any way that has been in vain. We want to worship you in spirit and in truth. We want to worship by the power of your spirit who dwells in us and with full knowledge of who we are as sinners, what Christ has done for us by redeeming us, by dying for us, and in full knowledge of who you are as the God, the Father who sent the Son to take our sins upon him to pour out your wrath upon him on the cross in our place so that we might be able to stand here and sing how great thou art. Lord, let us, let us dwell on these things. 
Help us not to be so consumed with the things of this world that we forget to go to your word, to read it, to study it, to behold you in it, to see our Savior so that we can come on a Sunday morning for the very purpose of letting our joy in you be expressed in song, to be expressed in the uniting of our hearts in prayer, to be expressed in hearing your word preached to us. Give us that type of heart. Give us that type of passion and zeal so that this day would not be a day of just one more thing to cross off, but it would be the day that we long for throughout the week. Help us, Lord, to worship even now as we respond to all of this in song. And may we do so for your glory, for the exaltation of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, the music group is going to come forward, so I want to ask you to stand and let's sing, Oh, to See the Dawn.